welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday the 2nd of June with me, B. Stevenson, covering 40 and Welsh, whilst he's away at our Future of Food US conference in Minneapolis. Live from the conference, Ian's been speaking to Rod Snyder, Senior Agricultural Advisor at the US Environmental Protection Agency, about the actions that US federal government are taking to accelerate progress in the agricultural sector. Ian recently also spoke to Fabiana Ferlin, Head of Commercial Finance and Sustainability at Cotton Farmers Schaefer. They spoke about how a regenerative approach can help farmers to overcome reliance on chemical inputs, can restore soil health and rebalance ecosystems. First though, a quick roundup of this week's sustainable business news. Scientists have found that rock flour produced by grinding under Greenland's glaciers can capture significant CO2 and aid in mitigating climate change. The process, known as enhanced rock weathering, involves the breakdown of rock powder through natural chemical reactions, which then locks carbon from the air into new carbonate materials, which flow as mud from below the glaciers. The slow process does take decades, so it would be a complementary measure to fossil fuel reduction rather than a silver bullet solution. As well as its potential to remove billions of tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere, scientists say that the rock flower also has benefits as a fertiliser, helping to improve crop yields when scattered on farmlands. With an essentially unlimited supply of rock flower from Greenland's 1 billion tonnes produced annually, scientists see great potential in this simple and scalable solution. The UNEP has published a new report with recommendations on how the apparel industry can scale a circular textile sector. The report, entitled Sustainability and Circularity in the Textile Value Chain, a Global Roadmap, identifies three key priorities, shifting consumption patterns, improved practices, and infrastructure investment. The report addresses what each stakeholder group in the value chain can do individually and collectively to scale circularity. The roadmap breaks the work down into nine building blocks that each stakeholder can focus on, with priority actions for each group. Further stakeholder-specific annexes will be released in the coming months, at key events and meetings for the apparel sector. Non-profit disclosure platform CDP has launched a campaign to encourage over 1,600 major companies, including industry giants like Saudi Aramco, ExxonMobil, Glencore, Volvo and Tesla, to disclose their environmental data through CDP's reporting platform. The campaign is supported by nearly 290 financial institutions, representing $29 trillion in assets in the context of increasing investor demands for detailed information on climate risks and initiatives. The targeted companies emit an estimated 4,200 megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent annually, equivalent to the greenhouse gas emissions of the UK, EU and Canada combined. The campaign seeks to enhance transparency and understanding of these companies' environmental impacts. With stricter financial reporting rules being implemented globally, this campaign aims to drive greater transparency, improve risk management practices and promote sustainability in capital markets. In a UK trial beginning this week, Mars bars with new paper packaging will be available at 500 Tesco stores. Mars will be trialling the recyclable paper packaging for a limited time, moving away from its recognisable non-recyclable plastic wrappers. Mars has said that it is investing hundreds of millions of pounds in redesigning thousands of types of packaging, with the goal of reducing its virgin plastics by one quarter and increasing recycled plastic usage in its packaging. The confectionery player follows Nestle in trading in its traditional and often iconic packaging for more sustainable options. Nestle brand Quality Street swapped foil and plastic wrappers for recycled paper last year, whilst the company's Kit Kat bars were wrapped in a new 80% recycled plastic packaging. 
As they approach 2030 milestones, it's likely that more and more well-loved products such as these will be wrapped in sustainable packaging options as innovation in this area continues. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing the last conferences in our 2023 spring conference season. This week, we're holding our US Future of Food conference in Minneapolis, where Ian Welsh had the chance to speak to Rod Snyder, Senior Agricultural Advisor at the US Environmental Protection Agency, about the actions that US federal government are taking to accelerate progress in the agricultural sector and the balance between voluntary and regulatory incentives for sustainable agriculture. I'm joined by Rod Snyder, who's Senior Agricultural Advisor at the US Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome, Rod. Thanks for having me, Ian. We've just come out of a session looking at the role of both state and federal regulations in the US. What does the US federal government, what are they doing to accelerate progress in the agricultural sector? Well, this is an incredibly unique and important moment in time, I believe. If you look at the Biden administration's broader priorities, the president had the United States rejoin the Paris Accord on his very first day in office in 2021 and announced a goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by the year 2030. This is truly a top line priority for this administration. Uh, but even more significantly is uh, the president signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act in August of last year of 2022, which has about a $400 billion investment to accelerate climate strategies to address the climate crisis. It's the largest investment in climate strategies in the history of the United States. It includes a whole variety of funding opportunities, you know, many different segments of the economy, including food and agriculture. And there's funding that's $20 billion that's going to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, as well as other pots of funding to EPA that could be eligible for food and ag projects. It's a moment of acceleration. It's really unique if you look back over the last several decades of climate policy. How do you get the balance between a forced regulatory versus voluntary approach? That's something that came up a lot in the session just now. Of course, there have to be regulatory mechanisms and safeguards in place, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency certainly has certain regulatory authorities around certain aspects of the broader economy. In agriculture, I think some of the biggest impact that we've seen over the past century um, has certainly come through voluntary conservation efforts and initiatives. If you look at the reduction in soil erosion through no-till or reduced-till agriculture over, over the many years, a lot of that was done just through partnerships between farmers and the federal government. Um, if we now look at how we reduce emissions um, or even improve water quality, improve soil health, these types of investments from the federal government are going to make a huge impact in that space. We, of course, will continue to implement the regulatory authorities that we do have, but some of the biggest impact is certainly available through these types of voluntary incentive-based programs. It feels an awful lot that, in many respects, the government here in the U.S. Is, is trying to catch up with some of the ambition that the private sector has shown over the past few years. Well, it's exciting to see the convergence of private sector goal setting and now public sector investment. I, prior to coming to EPA, I worked at Field to Market, working with uh, mostly CPGs and private sector companies that were setting targets. But now, really in the last year or two, you have a true partner in the federal government that's resourcing this work to help come alongside and row in the same direction and accelerate that progress. So um, I, I do think it's a really critical time, especially if we can find ways to work together. What does the future look like then? What are the next areas of collaboration? We heard a lot about collaboration already. What are the next areas that you're going to be focusing on at the EPA? Well, as I said on the panel, we're just starting to hit the ground in terms of implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. We have notice of funding opportunity coming out this summer 
summer around the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, um, which is a $27 billion program. It's $5 billion going to states through climate pollution reduction grants that are just going to be going out over the next year or so. So when it comes to implementing these new climate investments, we're on the front end of that. And we'll be able to continue measuring progress and impact over the coming years. Well, it seems that there's a lot happening, not coming up in the next few months, but Rob Snyder from the US EPA, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Ian recently also spoke with Fabiana Ferlin, Head of Commercial Finance and Sustainability at Schaefer in Brazil. They spoke about how a regenerative approach can help farmers to overcome reliance on chemical inputs and restore soil health and rebalance ecosystems. They also discussed the improvements that regenerative practices have on biodiversity and carbon sequestration, and how these metrics can be measured and certified. Why don't you start by giving us a very quick introduction to Schaeffer. Where are you based and, and what do you guys do? Schaeffer is a family farming operation in Brazil. We farm for more than 35 years. We farm basically cotton, soybean, corn. We also have a cat operation. It's a family-owned company, so the two generations, they are running the business. They are in the business on a daily basis. And uh, it has been seven years that we are farming under regenerative practices in large scale in Brazil. Let's think a bit about the cotton sector in Brazil. What are the main challenges facing cotton farmers in Brazil? The biggest and the most relevant aspect in terms, looking in terms of sustainability, intense use of chemical inputs. The thing is that we farm in a tropical area. Controlling pests and diseases is really challenging. We have high temperature and high humidity all year long. Not like in the US that there is a winter that breaks the cycle between one crop year to the next. For any tropical region, this is a big challenge, actually. Given that, what prompted you to switch to a more regenerative agriculture approach? Maybe around eight years ago, the family just brainstorming and look at the way that we've been farming cotton in the previous 20 years. They realized that seed varieties and the seed technologies have been improving year over year. But at the same time, we were having the need for applying more and more chemicals. We realized that we were missing something. We were having good yields back then. It's not that that was an issue. But we realized that maybe we were missing something because of these improvements. And at the same time, we were having the need to use more and more chemical inputs. So, yeah, then we started doing a lot of research. We started to do visits in other farming operations outside of Brazil, in the U.S., in Australia, and also other cross-sector benchmark, such as organic sugar cane in Brazil, that they have a great case study. They're farming more than 20,000 hectares of organic sugarcane for many, many years already. We started to explore different landscapes, different farming conditions in order to find some answers that we were trying to look for. Now, we, after so many years of study and all these visits and benchmark, we just learned throughout this journey that the modern agriculture is really relying on chemical inputs. We just now know that the biology is overlooked in the modern agriculture. We just know that we need to build biology back. We need to bring life back into the soil in order to have a more balanced ecosystem. This is the key point for us. The soil is the most valuable asset for us as a farmer. All our practices are centered into restoring a healthy soil and focused on keeping and building a healthy soil. And the regenerative practices come towards this direction. The first and the most relevant aspect for us 
throughout all this process is actually the reduction of chemical inputs. So we were able to reduce, to start reducing chemical inputs and building biology and building a better healthy ecosystem. What are the individual regenerative practices that you've introduced to bring this biology back into the soil, as you see? We reduce the chemical inputs and in order to be able to do that, we are applying biological inputs. We do need to control the pests and disease because they are there and we cannot risk to have a failure crop. We are actually using biological inputs. Biological inputs means microorganisms such as fungi and bacteria that will control specific pests and diseases. In this last couple of seven years, we've been able to reduce an average of 40% of the chemical inputs in our cotton crop and about 50% as an average on our soybean crop. So it's pretty significant and impactful. But it's not only the chemical reduction. Building biology, of course, it's really important. Then the biological inputs are relevant in this context. But also there are other practices that build together the regenerative practices towards a healthier soil. So a zero tillage is really important. The more you just the soil, the more you expose the biology so to the sun, to the heat, to the wind to water, so it's very damaging to the soil health. So we do apply zero tillage in all our operation. Cover crops, we cannot leave a bare soil because of the same reasons that I just mentioned. It's, it's very harmful for the soil. Crop rotation for many positive aspects as well, nutrient cycling and precision agriculture. So we apply all the inputs at a variable rate. We also have zero irrigation in our operations. It's 100% rain-fed. So yeah, those are the main practices that um, they're combined. They are all focused on soil health. Okay, so what have been the impacts overall inputs? You mentioned 40% reduction in chemicals. What other inputs have altered? And what about your yields? How have they been affected in the land that you're practicing these regenerative agricultural practices? In terms of positive impacts for nature, we see that biodiversity is a very, very strong context. We've been monitoring the biodiversity since then. Recently, we just now are measuring biodiversity by DNA. We collect a sample from the soil. We measure what is the quantity of different DNAs, and the functionality that they deliver to the soil, to the plant, and to the full ecosystem. I think this is one of the most relevant impact, positive impact under this context or under this holistic context of regenerative farming. Biodiversity is one, carbon is the second really equally important one. According to the literature, the more biological activity you have, the more likely you're going to have carbon fixed within the soil. We are also in many projects related to carbon, measuring carbon in the soil and in the ecosystem. So there are many approaches to that. The three most relevant ones are chemical reduction, carbon, and biodiversity. And what about your yields? How have they been impacted? In these last couple of years, we've seen that the yields, they kept almost the same, almost unchanged. We didn't see any big impact on yields. So how much land do you farm, thinking in terms of your cotton farming, and what's the rate of rollout of your regenerative practices? We are currently farming 70,000 hectares for cotton. I just want to highlight that it's important to share that most of our crop is planted as second crop. 
meaning that we plant soybean as a first crop in September, October. We harvest soybean Gen Feb, and then right immediately in the system of a direct planting with zero tillage, we plant cotton as a second crop Gen Feb, and we harvest cotton July, August. Just to highlight here, it's very, very relevant the land use efficiency as we have two crops in one crop year. Regen area that we've been applying the practices, most of the area they have one or two or three, they have some practices, but in different intensity. The area that we have certified today, it's 9,000 hectares for cotton. All the rest of the area that Sheffer cultivates, there has some stage of the other pro-regenerative practices as well. The certified area is about 13% of our total acreage. Just to clarify then, so all of your 70,000 hectares, you've introduced some regenerative practices. Correct. But you have 9,000 hectares where it's certified regenerative. So who certified it? What is that certification? We were the first farmer in Brazil to be certified by Contra Union Regenagri standard. It's a methodology that is putting together all the context and the criteria that mostly fits to the concept of soil health, biodiversity, carbon. So it's a very interesting methodology. And is the plan to roll out all of the regenerative practices across all your 70,000 hectares? Is that the long-term vision? Yeah, this is the long-term vision for Sheffer. I think the challenge here is the mindset of people, the mindset of people that are farm managers, people that are really in the fields taking decisions, because working with biological inputs, it requires much, much more attentive work in terms of being at the field almost every day. You need to be more preventive. You cannot wait a big pressure for a specific pest or a specific disease to develop. It's really hard to control when the pressure is higher. The challenge is really like finding the right mindset in order to take the risk because it's really taking a risk of doing something different. We don't see these regular classes in in universities, for example. This is the main challenge on expanding the practices. Because you recognize there are risks, you have to roll these things out gradually and carefully and demonstrate to everyone concerned, to all your stakeholders, that in fact it can be done and that the practices can be introduced successfully without impacting yields. On the demand side, are you seeing increasing demand from the cotton sector for crop that is grown in this way? And if so, how is that changing? We've been hearing more and more talks about it. Brands are talking about it. They are positioning themselves as they want to go towards this origination in terms of preferred fiber. In practical terms, we see very small pilots. This is actually you know, one of the biggest challenges of the market today because I think there are a lot of talks, but when it comes to real actions, things get a little bit diluted. Um, I think there is for sure a trend in the market, not only for fibers, but for sure for food as well. The commitments must be there. Thinking also in long term, because this is not something that you can do from one year to the to another. It's, it requires having investments in facilities, in staff, in specialized staff, in research. It's really a long-term view. And because of that, it also requires long-term collaborations throughout the supply chain. The market is talking a lot about the concept, but we still feel that there should be more like practical actions and roadmap towards the targets. You mentioned investment. Who is investing in developing the next generation of regenerative practices? 
the context is really about keeping the, the research, making collaborations between like companies like farmers as us and research institutes, universities, uh, ourselves. We have some collaborations in Brazil for doing research, especially on microorganisms, because this approach with a more balanced ecosystem with nature actually providing a service to a crop, it makes all the sense. The more that we learn and the more that we do research about it, the more we realize that we know nothing about it in terms of the strength and then the service that the biology can deliver to crop systems. Definitely, I think the way forward is this kind of you know, collaboration between uh, cross-sectors and doing research, especially in terms of the potential of the biology and microorganisms, fungi, and yeah, there's huge potential going forward in terms of finding new solutions. What do you think is the potential scalability of regenerative agriculture for cotton in general? Will it, uh, do you think, succeed where perhaps organic at scale has failed? The key factor here on regenerative practices is that we've proved that it can be done at scale, such as ourselves. We've been doing it for a significant time already, and I think it's there. We can do it. It's also a matter of the value chain giving the right incentives in order to expand it, in order to strengthen it in terms of certification, in terms of traceability, in terms of metrics. Definitely the large scale is one of the solutions that the regenerative cotton delivers to the cotton industry. Yeah, and organic is less than 1% of the total global crop. It's very challenging as we do have an increasing population. The consumption is there. So we cannot just deny this fact. Regenerative brings a solution to the issue of a preferred fiber that is able to be grown in large scale. Certainly, there's lots of excitement, interesting stuff going on in regenerative agriculture for apparel and textiles and for food. It'll be interesting to see how it all develops in the next few years. Fabiana Ferlana from Sheffer, thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Yeah, It's a pleasure. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews, as well as webinars. You can also go there to find out more about the next conference in our Future of Climate Action series from the 12th to the 14th of June, as well as our Sustainable Apparel and Textiles US conference from the 21st to the 22nd. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. But that's it for now. Next week, we'll be back with Ian Welsh as the host, but it's been a pleasure to cover for him for the last couple of weeks. I've been B. Stevenson. Goodbye.